Chapter 7 Your Name in Print On a scorching Sunday afternoon, Hayes decided to go swimming. He went to the Intercontinental Hotel, nestled among the skyscrapers of the trendy Rapongi neighborhood, to take advantage of the outdoor garden pool on its fourth floor. The piano shaped pool was surrounded by umbrellas and lounge chairs, as well as a small kids' pool. Visitors could pay a hefty fee, nearly $100, for access to the facility. By now, in September 2007, that was pocket change to someone like Hayes. Plus, he respected the supply and demand dynamics that clearly were at play in setting the steep price. No sooner had he sat down poolside than something shiny caught his eye. Sitting on the terrace floor was a tall, pale skinned blonde woman. She was wearing a pink crocheted bikini. It wasn't just her looks. Even from afar, there was something about her mannerisms that captivated him. He stared at her for the next half hour, wondering if she would notice him. She didn't. Hayes didn't consider trying to talk to her. He was far too shy for that. Plus, he was living with his girlfriend. What point would there be in trying to strike up a conversation with a random woman? Then he noticed that she was reading a book that he had just read himself, Queen Camilla, a satire about the British royal family taking up lives as commoners. Hayes took it as a sign. He nervously walked over to the woman. That was the bravest I've ever been, he would later recall. Sarah Tye was a London based associate at the corporate law firm of Shearman and Sterling. The 27 year old had a month of unpaid leave at work as she waited to officially become a lawyer and so had gone on vacation with a friend. After a week in Tokyo, they'd been scheduled to catch a flight to Okinawa. But a typhoon grounded the plane. They got a room at the Intercontinental. Then Ty came down with food poisoning. As she slowly recovered, she parked herself at the hotel pool to read and perhaps take a nap. Ty sat poolside, dangling her toes in the cool water. Suddenly, a shadow blocked out the sun. Ty looked up from her barely opened book. Standing above her was a slim, nerdy looking man wearing a red England soccer jersey and matching shorts. His golden Queen's Park Rangers pinky ring glinted in the bright light. All right, good book? Hayes blurted out. Oh my God, Ty thought to herself, appalled by the man's childish outfit and awkward demeanor. An overeager, oversized boy. This was the last thing she wanted to be dealing with right now. She made her best bitch face, hoping to scare him away. I don't know, I'm on the first page, she hissed. As far as she was concerned, the conversation was over. But it wasn't. Hayes plopped down next to her. He started to talk about Queen Camilla. Then his monologue veered into finance. A crisis was brewing, he excitedly told her. In the United States, banks were starting to teeter as borrowers fell behind and then defaulted on their mortgages. In Europe, funds run by BNP Paribas, which made the mistake of investing in products linked to those American mortgages, were collapsing. In England, customers were lining up to pull their money out of troubled mortgage lender Northern Rock. These were the early tremors in what would soon become an extraordinary, 
globe-swallowing earthquake. These were crazy times. Ty didn't care. Her stomach was unsettled, and she wanted to get back to sunbathing. But Hayes wouldn't leave her alone. He looked at the terrace's tiled floor and the sparkling pool and the hazy blue sky. He didn't make eye contact. Eventually, the one-sided conversation meandered to Ty's line of work. She explained that she was an aspiring lawyer and hoped one day to specialize in oil and gas law. What's the price of a barrel of oil? Hayes demanded. I don't know, she said. I'm on holiday. The reality was she wouldn't have known even if she wasn't on vacation. How can you be an oil lawyer if you don't know the price of oil? Hayes asked, unimpressed. Ty was tempted to tell him to scram, but she didn't have the heart. She was beginning to feel a little sorry for the guy. It was obvious how much effort he was pouring into the strained conversation. She figured she would let him extract himself gradually to save face. But Hayes was just getting started talking about the markets. Two hours later, the sun was starting to set. The pool would be closing soon. Ty, still in her bikini, was getting cold. But she was also intrigued. It turned out that she and Hayes had things in common. Both had moved as young teenagers from large urban centers to towns in the Hampshire region, Hayes to Winchester and Ty to Fleet, where both struggled to acclimate and were picked on because of their lower-class accents. Ty had a close relationship with Emma, her younger sister. Hayes was similarly close with his younger brother, Robin. Hayes liked that Ty, loyal to her childhood home, still supported Birmingham-area soccer team Aston Villa. It even turned out that they had both attended a 1994 match when QPR faced off against Aston Villa in London. Hayes recalled the game's exact date and score. Ty could tell this was an extraordinarily intelligent man. And, come to think of it, he wasn't bad-looking either. They walked together into the hotel to the locker rooms. Ty was in town for a few more days, and she was hoping Hayes would ask for her phone number or email address. But she wasn't going to be the one to make the first move. She had a policy of not asking guys out, and she wasn't about to stray from that now. Granted, the policy hadn't served her very well over the years. Aside from a college boyfriend, Ty hadn't ever had a serious relationship. Finally, before disappearing into the men's locker room, Hayes dug a crumpled business card out of his shorts and shoved it into Ty's hand. Email me if you want to go out with your friends sometime, he said. He still wasn't making eye contact. His face was flushed with embarrassment. He didn't mention that he was living with his girlfriend. Two days later, Ty emailed Hayes. The subject line was, Ce soir, this evening in French. It's Sarah from the Intercontinental Pool, she wrote. She invited Hayes out to dinner with her friend that night. Hayes accepted the invitation, then inundated Ty with detailed instructions about how to explain to a cab driver where the restaurant was. Ty responded a few hours later to confirm. She noted in passing that she hoped she had caught him before he left the office. Caught me in time? I'm usually in the office till 8 p.m., he boasted. It was a fun, boozy late night. 
Hayes brought along Nigel Delmore. The group met at the swanky Oak Door Bar on the sixth floor of the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Hayes told Ty that he'd been flummoxed by the Sussua subject line. He didn't know what it meant, and, after he figured it out, he couldn't understand why an English speaker, communicating with another English speaker, would write something in French. It's not as if they were in France. Then he grilled Ty with endless questions. Did she want kids? Perhaps. Did she smoke? No, she lied. Was she a vegetarian? Hell no. Did she have a strong work ethic? Yes. Was she committed to her career? Very much so. What were her political leanings? Apolitical. Hayes, much to his parents' chagrin, a Tory of Thatcherite leanings, was unimpressed. Did she enjoy reading? And, if so, what kind of books did she favor? Yes, fiction about wars, assassins, and spies. How much had she read by Michael Lewis, one of his favorite authors? None. Ty was taken aback by the machine-gun nature of Hayes' questions, which seemed designed to gauge their compatibility as mates. She was also charmed. The next day at work, Hayes was hurting. He wasn't accustomed to drinking on weeknights. He usually was in bed not long after 9 p.m., and now his head was pounding, his mouth cotton dry. None of that mattered when a note from Ty arrived in his UBS email account. She told him that she had an awesome time. Hayes couldn't suppress a smile. He typed an effusive response. It was really, really nice to meet you. Was pretty tired and hung over this a.m., but luckily the market is being kind to me today, so I'm making some money without doing too much. Maybe I should go out more often. He continued, I really enjoyed your company, and it's a shame we live 6,000 miles apart. He said he'd be back in England in the next few months. It would be nice to catch up in London at some point. In 2007, his first full year at UBS, Hayes earned about $48 million for the bank. It was a strong performance, but not a blowout. Some traders at rival banks were easily generating twice as much, although many more had been losing money in the now turbulent markets. UBS itself was suffering mountainous losses, but on top of his roughly $170,000 salary, Hayes got a $1 million bonus. To most people, especially someone in his late 20s, that would be a life-changing windfall. It certainly was the biggest haul of Hayes's career, but he viewed it as too low by at least half given the small fortune he'd generated for the Swiss bank. He was devoting his entire life to an intense, exhausting job, and he didn't feel like he was being adequately valued. The good news, Hayes told Reed, was that they sort of promised me a better one next year, even if I only make half the money. Try and get that in writing, mate, Reed said, marveling at Hayes's naivete. If the bank has a hard time again this year, the same excuses will roll out, and you are two years further down the line. Hayes's trading in those early crisis days had been frenzied. He was executing at least 50 transactions a day, sometimes double or triple that. He was trading products tied to the yen and dollar iterations of LIBOR. He was trading products linked to TIBOR. He was trading currencies. He was trading something called overnight index swaps. 
Occasionally, he'd squeeze 20 or 30 trades into five minutes. The transactions whizzed across his computer screens faster than he could enter them into his spreadsheets. The risks and interrelationships between positions became dizzying, the three-dimensional puzzle pieces getting jumbled. It wasn't unusual for him to make or lose $10 million in a single day. Hayes' managers, especially Pieri, were impressed. His 2007 performance review credited him with having greatly enhanced UBS's trading profile and helping to build an outstanding business, generating revenue above expectations through some of the most challenging markets. But, Pieri's review added, Hayes had some problems. He was too intense. He yelled too much. Some younger employees were scared of him. Needs to work on self-control and stress levels, Pieri wrote. Learn about how to deal and talk to others such that you can achieve your desired result without anger. Learn about emotional intelligence. As he had back in school, Hayes acknowledged his shortcomings in a self-assessment. I can be snappy and need to stop this. He knew that his tendency to growl, you're useless, at colleagues was not endearing. The explosive attitude wasn't reserved exclusively for his colleagues. His developing reputation for incivility and pushing the envelope a shade further than anyone else won him fewer and fewer allies. In the testosterone-fueled trading community, rivals weren't shy about calling him out on his tactics. One day in March 2008, a Lehman Brothers trader in Tokyo named Jeremy Martin noticed that Hayes was trying to nudge one part of the market involving short-term interest rates, known as the short end, in a favorable direction. The prior year, Martin had invited Hayes to a meeting to talk about a possible job offer. Hayes later concluded that Martin had simply been trying to trick him into revealing information about his investments in the hope of pilfering his ideas. Since then, Hayes had been doing whatever he could to make Martin miserable, including offering to buy or sell a certain volume of instruments, then withdrawing or downsizing his offer as soon as Martin took him up on it. Martin didn't realize that Hayes was just messing with him. He thought the UBS trader was trying to influence prices by momentarily appearing to increase demand. The tactic was common, but it nonetheless struck rivals as manipulative. If you want to fuck around in the short end, then you should do market size when you are hit, Martin wrote to Hayes in an instant message. In other words, he should honor the amount he was offering to trade if someone accepted his offer. Everyone is getting pissed off with your shit. What is market size, please, seeing as you are the short-end expert? Hayes replied sarcastically. I just want to trade, Martin wrote back. You seem more interested these days in pushing markets rather than trying to trade. It is frustrating for people like me who want to do something in the market because half the time it is not real. Yes, clearly I am not a big player and you are. That really bothers me, Hayes sneered. It's not about big or small, it's about being professional. It's about making money, I thought, Hayes said. In December 2007, UBS's CEO, Marcel Rohner, gave a presentation to investors in London. 
projected on a screen in front of the audience, the presentation cited structured LIBOR as one of the bank's core strengths and as a high-growth, high-margin business. This was the business that Hayes, along with his counterparts trading variations of LIBOR linked to currencies other than the yen, had helped turbocharge. A relatively small chunk of Hayes' profits for UBS, he would later estimate at most $5 million a year, came from his attempts to get the benchmarks moved in favorable directions, the rest deriving from some combination of luck and skill. Moving LIBOR was a team effort at UBS. Rank-and-file traders received help from their managers, who, in turn, sought support from their bosses. Pieri sometimes lobbed in his own requests to Hayes' brokers. The same month that Rohner delivered his presentation, Hayes' group had a huge position about to mature. For every basis point, or 0.01 percentage points, that three-month yen LIBOR rose, Hayes' portfolio stood to gain $2 million in value. He had been trying to get UBS to hike its LIBOR submissions in order to help push the overall average higher. But he was running into resistance. So Hayes turned to Pieri. We have been riding a wave on this trade, but everyone will be trying to influence the fixing next Monday reflecting their position. Pieri emailed Sasha Prince. Prince said he would talk to another executive. A few days passed. Pieri checked back in on December 14th. I need some assurance they will put their rate up, please, Pieri pleaded. Our rate input can make a significant difference. Pieri was successful. The trade would notch roughly $500,000. A week later, a similar thing happened. Hayes was back in England for a three-week vacation. Naomichi Tamura, a Tokyo trader a rung above him, sent an email to Hayes' personal account asking for help shifting LIBOR up. Hayes deferred dealing with Tamura's request, and more pleas, increasingly urgent, soon followed. After opening presents with his family on Christmas morning, Hayes and Robin drove more than three hours to the southwestern city of Plymouth to see Queen's Park Rangers lose 2-1. to one. The game didn't end until around 5 p.m., but with Tamura frantic about Hayes not managing to get LIBOR higher, Hayes glumly decided they needed to drive back to London so that he could show up at UBS's offices by the time Japanese markets opened for business in the middle of the British night. There was work to do. He could nap at his desk if he really needed to. Hayes stayed up all night at work while Robin dozed in a hotel. As he and his brother had driven back to London, Hayes had been in a foul mood. It wasn't just because QPR had lost again. He wondered what he was doing in this job, and he wasn't the only trader harboring such misgivings. Not many of those who filed into trading floors around Wall Street or in Canary Wharf really enjoyed the work. Sure, plenty, probably most, felt that aspects of what they were doing were worthwhile. Some found satisfaction in solving the mathematical riddles that financial markets presented. Others enjoyed the frat house atmosphere. Still others basked in the social and professional glory of being near the top of the great investment banking totem pole. And just about all of them liked the money. 
the sturdy six-figure paycheck, the anticipation of ever greater riches in the form of your annual bonus, the prospect of being lured to a rival bank or hedge fund in exchange for a massive payday. There were also the pleasures that all that money could buy. Luxury vacations, first-class plane tickets, fast cars, penthouse apartments, great seats at marquee sporting events and concerts, top-of-the-line watches and jewelry, access to the most exclusive clubs and the best Michelin-starred restaurants. But ask most traders if they were happy with their professional lives, if they found their jobs fun, if they intended to do it forever. The answer was almost always an unequivocal no. Part of it was that the jobs were stressful. The hours were long, the competition relentless, the pressure to not only perform well, but also perform better than your rivals and even your colleagues, never-ending. The lifestyle was rarely healthy. Traders ate bad foods and drank too much. They didn't get enough sleep. Anger flowed freely on trading floors. Shouting matches were encouraged as a sign of machismo. Friendships among traders were often mirages, and the job itself just wasn't all that enjoyable, especially when you worked at a global bank. Once you got the hang of trading, it became monotonous. Hour after hour, day after day, month after month, the traders sought to exploit tiny price differentials to make small amounts of money in the hopes that it would add up to a sizable profit for the bank and therefore a bigger bonus for himself. But aside from money for the sake of money, there was no purpose. You weren't building anything of value other than more trading opportunities for your colleagues and rivals. Around and around it went. Behind their cocky facades, many traders wallowed in self-doubt and wrestled with existential questions. They were dispirited. And so it was that in the world's major financial districts, discreetly signposted mental health clinics peddling treatments for depression and anxiety were competing with gyms, coffee shops, and steakhouses for scarce real estate. Despite UBS's best vacation-ruining efforts, Hayes' trip back to England wasn't a total bust. He managed to catch five QPR matches, and his team eked out three victories, an impressive feat for the beleaguered squad. But that wasn't the best part. Before he had returned from Tokyo, Hayes and Ty had become friends on Facebook and talked on the phone a couple of times. In London, he spent time with her and her friends, and on Christmas Eve, the two of them went to Basingstoke, a town so dull it was nicknamed Roundabout City for its large number of traffic circles, where they browsed a bookshop's bargain rack and went out for burgers. Hayes spent several nights in Ty's one-bedroom flat in London's Islington neighborhood. Ever ignorant about appropriate behavior, he spent the time complaining about the fact that she didn't have a TV and that her supply of hot water was inadequate. The pair fantasized about Hayes returning to London or Ty moving to Tokyo. Hayes was still with Ainsworth, but he was beginning to brainstorm about ways to finally extricate himself. In an attempt to express his hard-to-articulate emotions, Hayes offered to pay Ty's credit card bills. She politely declined. When Hayes returned to Tokyo in January, he was already stressed. For a change, it wasn't related to work. It was the two Sarahs. 
We've been together a long time, he told Reed. I met someone else who I really like. I haven't cheated on her, but it's made me doubt the whole thing. Like whether she is the person for me for the rest of my life. I've never been in this position before. Reed patiently listened to Hayes's dilemma and then shared his own sad story. He had spent the holidays with his family in a national park in New Zealand. Despite the tranquil setting, he couldn't get LIBOR or his lone client, his livelihood, out of his head. Hayes had several big trades riding on three-month LIBOR, but, preoccupied with his courtship of Ty, uncharacteristically wasn't pestering Reed. But the broker had a job to do. He tried to call Goodman in London to remind him to help. In the middle of the National Park, however, Reed's cell phone couldn't pick up a signal. Abandoning the holiday, he got in his car and started heading towards civilization. By the time the phone was back in range, Reed had been driving for 90 minutes. The trip was pointless. It turned out that Goodman already knew about Hayes' positions. He told me to go away. He had it covered, Reed told Hayes. Footnote. Reed would later claim that he never made that phone call to Goodman and that he fabricated the whole tale in order to impress Hayes. End footnote. It wasn't hard to see why Goodman would want the Wellington-based broker to go away. Traders from banks including BNP Paribas, J.P. Morgan, and elsewhere also were pelting him with requests to move LIBOR. But Reed was the most relentless. Goodman hated putting his credibility on the line for the sake of a broker in New Zealand and some obnoxious trader in Tokyo whom he hardly knew. And the requests kept pouring in, the buzz of his iPhone disrupting the tranquility of his pre-dawn train rides into Waterloo Station. Goodman occasionally tried to get Reed off his back. Early one morning in March 2008, his train ride was interrupted by a text message from Reed requesting slightly lower LIBOR. After 17 minutes and no response, Reed repeated his request. Goodman waited another 20 minutes before answering Reed's two texts, have compliance asking about various things, i.e. LIBORs, he wrote, trying to get Reed to shut up. Footnote. Goodman would later insist that nobody in compliance had ever spoken to him about LIBOR. He couldn't even recall writing that message to Reed. End footnote. But the text message requests kept coming and coming. Reed's appeals remained so dogged that when Goodman forgot to bring his cell phone to work one day, he emailed Reed to let him know. No mobile today. Bugger, Reed responded. Then he emailed over his daily request. On February 27th, UBS convened a special meeting of its shareholders on the outskirts of the medieval Swiss city of Basel. For the event, the bank rented out a venue called St. Jacobsal, which was usually used for concerts and small sporting events. Investors were to cast their votes on whether the bank should be permitted to sell about $13 billion worth of its shares to Singaporean and Middle Eastern institutions. The goal was to fortify UBS's rapidly deteriorating finances. Shareholders were grumpy. Over the past six months, the bank's stock price had tumbled nearly 40%, thanks to UBS's awful bets on securities made up of risky American mortgages. 
The situation was all the more galling because of the bank's history as a reliable, risk-averse Swiss institution. The proposed creation of the new stock meant that the already ravaged existing shares would be worth even less. More than 6,000 investors packed into St. Jacobsal that morning. They grudgingly approved the proposal and then took the opportunity to vent their rage. One after another, they marched up to the lectern and lashed out at the bank's executives and board members. As a good housewife, I know you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, one shareholder scolded. A bank is not a casino. Put an end to the Americanization of the Swiss economy, another shouted, before charging the podium and being dragged away by security guards. Some shareholders demanded the resignations of the bank's chairman and fellow board members. Others called for UBS to recoup the bonuses it had just finished handing out to its investment bankers and executives. Sitting at their desks in London, two UBS traders, Andrew Walsh and Panayotis Hutsoyanis, watched a live-feed video of the meeting. The traders were disgusted, especially by the suggestion by some tosser, as Walsh put it, that UBS should rescind the bonuses. As if, fumed Hutsoyanis, universally known within the bank as Pete the Greek. Morons, Walsh said. People don't realize that the value of the firm is its people, Pete said. He felt that the penny-pinching bank was already stiffing its star performers, a group, incidentally, that he considered himself to be an important part of. The Greek citizen had joined UBS straight out of college and had worked at the bank his entire career. By now, he was a mid-level executive who still did some of his own trading. Like Hayes, he specialized in derivatives tied to interest rates. Also like Hayes, he regularly pinged the bank's LIBOR submitters with requests to move the rates in directions beneficial to his trades. Walsh, who submitted some LIBOR data for the bank, was sometimes helpful in that regard. And so the two men alternated between plotting to skew LIBOR and complaining about their woebegone employer. Hey, mate. We want a really low fixing tomorrow, Pete wrote to Walsh the day after the shareholder meeting. That's fine, Walsh responded. For emphasis, Pete added that he had 100,000 pounds riding on the outcome. A couple of months later, after the two agreed to keep LIBOR as high as possible, Pete the Greek said sarcastically that maybe UBS should form a committee to discuss where to set the rate. That's how many people, he mused, were involved in the deliberations. Hayes's family sometimes turned to him for financial advice. Once, Robin was looking to buy a house and phoned his older brother in Tokyo to talk about getting a mortgage. Robin said the interest rate on the proposed loan was based on something called LIBOR. Hayes perked up, correcting his younger brother's pronunciation. That's my whole job, he exclaimed before rattling off his projections for future changes in interest rates. It was a rare moment of recognition by Hayes of his job's connection to the real world of ordinary people and their bank accounts. Hayes's father, too, came calling, seeking counsel for his new pastime as an amateur investor. There were few things Tom Hayes was happier to talk about, and he happened to have a bright idea.
Hayes had a friend who worked at Bear Stearns. Its longtime CEO, the pot-smoking, bridge-playing Jimmy Kane, had gambled on instruments linked to the U.S. housing market, and the friend was convinced that his firm was circling the drain. His analysis struck Hayes as persuasive. So he told his dad to place a bet that Bear's shares had further to fall. This wasn't quite the plain vanilla type of investing that Nick was comfortable with. After monitoring Bear's shares for a couple days, he decided against the idea. At the time, the shares were trading above $30 each. On March 16th, J.P. Morgan agreed to buy the stricken firm for $2 a share. The trade Hayes had suggested could have made his father a killing overnight. Hayes, meanwhile, eventually worked up the nerve to dump Ainsworth in the nick of time. He felt guilty, but she needed to be out of the picture before Ty came to visit Tokyo. By the time she arrived, Hayes realized he was in love. Her visit lasted four days. Hayes introduced her to his local watering hole, a pub called the Windsor. The bar's owners, a Japanese couple, had taken such a liking to their loyal patron that they'd given Hayes keys to the place and let him go behind the bar to pour pints for his friends even when the pub was closed. He carefully detailed what he and his friends had consumed and paid the tab later. Hayes was obsessed with Rod Stewart, so he and Ty listened to his songs on repeat. Fortunately, Ty had a high tolerance for Do You Think I'm Sexy? At night, they watched movies and TV. Hayes was a huge Seinfeld fan and had memorized numerous episodes. But his favorite thing to watch was the 1997 movie As Good As It Gets. He could see shades of his own personality in Jack Nicholson's obsessive-compulsive character. As he and Ty watched it together, he recited every line of dialogue aloud. Ty thought it was adorable. Love struck, they adopted the Rihanna song Umbrella as their personal anthem. Ty started considering the logistics of moving to Tokyo. Before she took that leap, though, Hayes felt like he needed to get some things off his chest. He told her he wanted to engage in a disclosure exercise. In highly organized fashion, he cataloged all his faults to Ty, among them his obsessive tendencies and awkward demeanor. At times, Hayes had wondered why Ty was attracted to him. Are you only with me for my money? He asked more than once. Ty assured him that wasn't the case, although his wealth certainly was a nice perk. He would continue to ask the question for months. Eventually, sick of the refrain, she threatened to break up with him if he asked one more time. He never did. Two weeks later, Ty handed in her resignation at work. Moving to Tokyo, she posted on Facebook. She knew it was rash, but she overrode her cautious instincts. When you know, you know, she said. I'm just happy for once, Hayes gushed to read. Before Ty moved, Hayes returned to England. One of his priorities was to meet Ty's parents. In advance, Hayes familiarized himself with Ty's mother's favorite TV shows so that he'd have something to discuss with her. Look, I'm socially awkward, he announced to her mother, Karen, when he caught her alone in the family's kitchen. 
It's taken me all day to think of things to talk to you about. Karen arched her eyebrows. He also met Ty's sister, Emma, who was 18 months younger. The tall, blonde siblings were sometimes mistaken as twins, a misperception they playfully encouraged. Emma, however, viewed anyone tied to London's financial industry as suspect. Her ex-husband had been a broker, at ICAP no less. Right off the bat, though, it was clear that Hayes wasn't anything like her party animal ex, and she agreed to withhold judgment. Ty planned to live in her own apartment in Tokyo, at least at first. After all, she didn't really know Hayes very well. But he persuaded her that this was a waste of money. Sarah loves Tom, she posted on Facebook on May 12th. When she arrived two weeks later, they moved in together. Now she could witness Hayes's oddball personality up close. She would often return to their apartment in the evenings to find him and Nigel Delmar finishing up watching the same movie, The Blind Side, for the umpteenth time. Hayes adored the film, based on a book by his beloved Michael Lewis, and he subjected Delmar to countless repeat viewings. This was how it was with Hayes. When he liked something, he might watch it hundreds of times. It was safe, no surprises, each scene always the same as it had been before. Hayes was not putting Rod Stewart or Jack Nicholson on repeat because, like a critic, he was dissecting, searching for deeper meaning. He was doing it because the repetitive nature brought him an intangible but very real sense of comfort and security. His moods swung in lockstep with the markets. If he was making money, he was relatively calm and could even be jubilant. But if things weren't going well, a switch would flip and he would become nearly catatonic. Ty was stunned when she saw him in one of his zombie-like states, staring, refusing to answer questions. There was no middle ground, no moderation. Hayes never told Ty, but during those money-losing stretches, he sometimes contemplated suicide. The idea would flit through his mind, then vanish just as quickly but he kept the dark thoughts to himself. The trader gene in Hayes ran so deep that it extended to his wardrobe. He had more money than he knew what to do with, but he shopped for clothes on eBay. He loved the chase and trying to game rival bidders. He became fixated on Porsche, but he wasn't about to buy a car in Tokyo, so he settled for items made by the company's clothing and accessories arm, Porsche Design. He wouldn't leave the apartment unless he was wearing a Porsche sweater or a Porsche polo shirt or at least was carrying a Porsche keychain in his pocket. During his time at UBS, Hayes executed tens of thousands of trades, all but a few dozen of them with other banks or Wall Street firms. In his capacity as a market maker, he offered prices to prospective customers on nearly a half million occasions. It was a calling in which he and his peers took smug self-satisfaction. Market makers viewed themselves as responsible for the proper functioning of the markets, a vital duty, albeit one that primarily benefited the banks and other specialized investors that accounted for the overwhelming majority of trading. We are the market, was a common refrain among market makers. Hayes was exceptionally good at his market-making job. 
He never hesitated to say yes to a trade if he was comfortable with the price that his model spat out. Of all the things Tom was, he was a force of nature in the market, Danny Wilkinson would recall. He was like the George Soros of the yen market. In one bit of folklore, Hayes sometimes traded so heavily that he skewed the market in noticeable ways. For example, six-month yen LIBOR should always be higher than the three-month variety because it costs more, reflecting the higher risk, to borrow for longer time periods. But sometimes that relationship inverted. Brokers attributed the phenomenon to Hayes. One spring day, a journalist got in touch looking for expert commentary about the turbulent market. It was the first time Hayes had spoken to a reporter. Hayes proudly shared the resulting email exchange with Reed. I like it, mate, Reed said. Your name in print. No, Hayes clarified. His comments would be attributed to an anonymous trader. I don't want my name in print, he said. Fame has no appeal for me, nor infamy.